This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Hello there. This is Selena Durgan, editor of The Biblical Mind. We're so grateful for you, our listeners, and we're curious about your thoughts and questions regarding the intellectual world of the Bible. We are now inviting listeners to send us questions, and we'll start answering them in upcoming Q&A episodes. You can email your questions to our administrator at ch.t underscore administrator at tkc.edu, which you can also find in the show notes. We look forward to hearing from you. I mean, we were just, I, actually, I've just started a, a, an MA class on Leviticus as well. <clears throat> and we were just talking about the uh, the detail. I mean, just in Leviticus 1, was it 1-3, um, you know, when you bring the sacrifice and you place your hand on the head. And I said, why, you know, why would Leviticus include this detail? Because the only other time that hands are placed are when the priest places two hands on, you know, the head of the the escape goat or the goat. Right. And there's the a very Yom specific Kippur. verb for that, right? So yeah, not, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, and so, you know, one of the things that that I one of the things that I try to tell the students is that, you know, Leviticus is the type of book that you can't not think about without imagining how you would feel. If this were to happen to you, you mm. know it, that this is um, that ritual is given to the ancient Israelites because you know they didn't go to seminary, they didn't go to college, they didn't you know many of them wouldn't have read or, or they wouldn't have been able to write, and so if God is teaching them through ritual, then it's incumbent upon us to look at these rituals and say, ah, all right, so what did it smell like? What did it what did it what did it feel like to see blood pouring out of this animal that you've raised in your family that probably slept in the bottom of your house you know and was part of your you know part of your your family unit and thinking theologically in terms of and what is this sacrifice of this animal doing and so when you look at all the details um, though for any <laughs> any contemporary christian reader it's it's got to be the most driest boring most boring text in the bible but mm. the moment that you begin to think of it in the physicality and the symbolism and again as you said we don't know what it all you know exactly meant but we can certainly feel as human beings what this might have taught an ancient israelite about the holiness of god and and I think I think that's when you know for a lot of my students that's when the that's when the light bulb goes off. They think, oh yes, you're right. Like they didn't have books. They didn't sit around and you know read kind of the prophet Isaiah in their in their in their home group and talk about you know mm. the several commentaries <laughs> written on the prophet or whatever it is you know and and so so I think that that's maybe one of the hurdles of of kind of approaching some of these. Um, some of these sacrificial te texts in realizing that you know the ritual was there not just to um, 
not just to tell them, you know, how to how to cut up a, you know, how to cut a bull or a sheep or a calf and how to throw it on the fire and disperse its blood, but to to teach them about God's holiness and about the purification that God invites Israel to experience so that they can continue to live in relationship with him. I think yeah I think I think some of those things are are kind of critical in 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 getting a gist of what's going on in, in the book. Wait, what do you think uh, all of that detail I'm thinking across Leviticus now the the, the whole thing. Um, what do you think it teaches us about God's concerns? the world because i think a lot i mean for me i know something's going wrong in my life when i try to compartmentalize and say oh well god's not really worried about this so i got this and then god's going to take care of this other stuff um but leviticus seems to tear down some of those walls Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the you know that's the um, you know kind of that Leviticus nineteen two is the summary of you know God saying to all the people, "Be holy, therefore, as God is holy." And it's that um, I can't remember if it was Jacob Milgram or Levine. It might have been Baruch Levine who talks about you know the vision of Leviticus is not kind of a um, a, a contained holiness, but it's that all of life would be consecrated ultimately in God's holiness. Mm. And that, I mean, is another thing that I think is just so fascinating about the book is that, you know, whether it's from what you eat or whether it's, you know, who you have sex with or, you know, uh, if you've got skin problems (laughs) or you've got mold in your house, um, you know, all of these things for Leviticus are critical. How you treat the land, how you treat the people who live on the land in justice. And and, um, you know, I mean, this it, it's one of the few, I mean, I don't know about you, but I think it's one of the few books in the Old Testament that presents such a holistic vision for life, you know, and, and what it means to, uh, to kind of be a follower of this God, Yahweh, and to be his covenant people and what that entails. And, and I think, I mean, that's just, that's what you know, that's what drew me to the book. Kind of, I suppose, just drew me further into it. And I'm sure it's the same for you when you just yeah. get into these, you know, these details and these rituals and these, um, you know, these practices and these commands. And you think, what the heck does that have to do with holy living? But then, when you really start scratching below the surface, you see, oh, wait a second. This is this is a whole kind of ecosystem of life. It's not just kind of compartmentalizing. You know, this this little bit here or this little bit here. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I love about it. To bastardize a quote, it's uh, you get to the end of Leviticus and it's, there's not one square inch in, uh, in the cosmos where Yahweh can't point and declare this is mine. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, so thank goodness for us Christians, we don't have to deal with any of these rituals and we've been freed from all of these animal sacrifices and the blood. Um, and so really it's just about our, having God in our hearts and thoughts and prayers. Right. Um, so what do you, what do you do with this decrepit old book that just keeps on hanging on in the scriptures called Leviticus uh, when we get into the gospels? 
Yeah, I had a. Um, a that was a, all caricature. And yes, sarcasm, I did. By the way, <laughs> will, I <laughs> Mark and I are chuckling idea. back and forth. Yeah, so <laughs> I will take that as caricature. Yeah. Caricature. Um, I had this wonderful conversation with a student, and I don't think they really realized that they said it. But um, but we were talking about uh, we're talking about atonement and some of the other things, and 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 he and he said to me with with a very serious and very straight face, um, well. If we just take out Leviticus and Hebrews, then we don't really have to deal with this. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, well, that's a that's a, a fair way of saying it. If you could just delete Maybe, the book, there. But this no. is this was a, a a classic example of the cancel culture. If we could just cancel Hebrews right. and Leviticus, then we'd be fine. We wouldn't have to right. worry about these. Subjects. Just find a racist joke in there somewhere, and we can cancel the whole book. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, 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 uh, my obvious response was no. We we, we cannot um, just just exclude these books from our theology and our doctrine. Um, but I think, um, I mean, the fascinating uh, one of the books that um, that uh, that I was really happy was written uh, was Matthew Teeson's um, Jesus mm. and the Forces of Death. This was a great book as I was working on uh, this theology of Leviticus that will hopefully soon be published with Cambridge University Press. Um, and and I loved what he did in that book um, because he took it from a New Testament side, but he really looked at the life of Jesus through the lens of Leviticus, and so talked about things um, like the healings um, and the the power of God's holiness to restore. and And I think one of the things I, I think I got it from his book was just this idea of if Jesus is you know, the incarnate glory of God, as we read in John's gospel in his prologue. And if the holiness of the tabernacle temple is embodied in Christ, that um, John 1.14, the word became flesh and, and kind of tabernacled among us. If that's the case, then we see, you know, kind of this the power of holiness, this power, this awe-inspiring power that we read about in Leviticus, um, kind of going forth into the world as the Son of God. And we see Jesus, I mean, engaging with so many um, kind of of the laws that come out of Leviticus. Right. Um, you know, one one interesting one was, um, and I was preaching on this uh, months ago when it came up, but it was the beheading of John the Baptist. <clears throat> and if you remember the story, you remember that, that John is in prison because Herod has taken his brother's wife and i said and i said do you know why john was willing to sacrifice his life and be beheaded because he was being obedient to a small little commandment in leviticus chapter 18 i hope <laughs> 18 that says you shall not you know you should not take your brother's wife you should right. not have relations right. with your brother's wife and um yeah, and i 18. said and i said um you know do, do you realize that you know that John the Baptist, kind of the second most important, as it were, person in the Gospels, um, gave his entire life and ministry up because he held to the truth of a small little command in Leviticus, mm. and and it's that type of thing, uh, you know, that I, again, you know, most Christians just don't, they just don't realize that they just don't think about it that that these. That these laws and these—I mean, I hate to call them laws because we always know that term has instructions, such, such teachings, a loaded, guidance, yeah, these yeah. Teachings, but also so. hard stop commandments like there's yeah. something you just yeah. can't do, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like if you if you really are on the path to holiness as God has called us to, then you just you can't compromise these you know these things. I mean, as we were talking about, like something like the Sabbath, you just can't compromise it's just not possible and and i think the 
authors of the New Testament and certainly Christ himself had that very same understanding. Um, but but I think but as Christians we just tend to I, we just tend to forget that I suppose. Yeah. The 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 reaction to much of uh, the legislation of Leviticus, along with the Torah, the legislation of the Torah in general, is often, uh, well, these are just rules, commandments. You either do them, or you break them, or keep them. Uh, and uh, the problem with them is that you can just commit the, you can commit to these rules and these rituals, uh, but your heart isn't in it. Now, mm-hmm. I, I went a little extreme on my class the other day because. Uh, I said, you know, what? Well, you, when you bring your sacrifice to God, what else do you have to bring with it? And they, they said, a pure heart of intention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I snapped. I was like, <laughs> no, God doesn't care about your your good intentions in the moment of sacrifice. Um, and I'm going to run my what I said past you, and you critique it because I know you'll tell sure. me if you think I got it wrong, and I'll go back and apologize to them. But I said, <laughs> it's it's like when you come in for an you sit for an exam. Um, you bring your body, you bring your mind, you bring everything you need, the pencils, you need all the ritual instruments to sit for the exam. But you have to bring that preparation that you've been doing up at that time. And yeah. if you haven't been doing the proper preparation for the exam, the intentions of your heart at the moment of the exam don't they count for diddly squat, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really that that combination of the two. But I can't tell you how, and you, you can tell me what you think of that, but I, I cannot tell you how deeply embedded pure intentions of the heart is with uh, our ritual actions in most Christian thinking. Do you yeah. find this as well? And you're in Cambridge, England. And- yeah. Yeah. I think you're, yeah, no, I, I think you're a hundred percent right. I think the, um, and I think the other side uh, that, and often the, the Christian interpretation of, of bringing the offering and, and, and that process of that, you know, going through the ritual is, you know, I mean, for some Christian circles, it's the, you know, the, the kind of anti-ritual, you know, that, that no, you shouldn't, you don't have to do any of this. And the prophets Mm. condemn that clearly. And, you know, and, and, and I think that is another kind of embedded idea in Christianity that really, really needs to just completely die. It's the Mm. idea that the Pharisees kind of represent the false religiosity, the rule following, the strict regulations um, that Jesus hated, you know, and 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 therefore, and the conclusion that follows that is therefore we should just believe in Jesus and have faithful right. hearts and and not do anything, you know, not do anything else. Which <laughs> Nothing is, you else know, matters because your soul is escaping the body and going to hell, exactly, so you're good exactly. to go. <laughs> you're going to be off. <laughs> We're laughing again because that's a caricature <laughs> and sarcasm. You're going to be off in heaven floating around, so it doesn't matter right. anyway. Um, and so, yeah, so that's what um, I think I think similar to you, you know, this, this, this frustration with this idea of of separating our or compartmentalizing our our spiritual lives with the actual mm. physical kind of engagement with other people, and it was funny because I tried to explain this. I was just just with my class last week or this past week, and I was trying to explain this, um, and I can't. I don't think I put this in the book, but I said, <clears throat> I said, imagine, imagine if you will. I'd say this. Yeah, this isn't no. So so doctrine doctrinal note this is not this is a a false doctrine that i'm promoting right now but just imagine if you will because this will kind of get you into the hebraic mind potentially um imagine if you will that uh, you know we try to talk about sin as a um kind of as a corporate 
uh, entity, as it were, a corporate thing that happens to us corporately. That's not just our individual sin. Um, and so imagine that uh, every time you sin individually, you somehow, as a Christian, create a stain or a you cause some sort of disturbance, as it will, as it were, on your church. And imagine the whole body of your church, the whole community of your church, every time they sin, something is happening to the church. And you have this kind of understanding that there is this, there is this presence of sin in the church. And let's say the only way that you can kind of atone for or get rid of or cleanse that sin or the cause of your sin is, let's say, to celebrate the sacraments. Let's say you celebrate Mm. the Eucharist on Sunday and that sacrifice, sacrifice of bread and wine, um, becomes a way to cleanse the sin of the church each week. And then maybe one year, you know, one day on Easter, you have a big celebration. I said, if you harbor individual sin, it affects the whole community Mm. of faith. I said, that's how I think ancient Israel understood sin. It wasn't just my personal, I mean, there's obviously a personal side to it. You know, you have to make your own kind of, you know, your own Mm. sacrifices, but it is something that affects other people and other areas of life. And especially in ancient Israel, it affects the tabernacle, it affects God's home. And if you continue to contaminate or to profane God's home, you know, the fear is that he's going to take off, you know, and, and though we can't really, that's really hard for us theologically to grasp, but, you know, we couldn't imagine just Jesus leaving our church, (laughs) you know, but, but that's the idea, you know, if, if we don't atone for our sin, if we don't kind of corporately, uh, engage in these rituals and these sacrifices, then, you know, the, the possible consequence is that God is going to leave. And if God leaves, as we see in Ezekiel, you know, all hell breaks loose, you know, right. Babylon's come, temple's destroyed and, and exile comes. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's, it's one of these things. It's, it's so hard to kind of equate it to kind of you know, it's, to equate it to the church today, but right. just to try to grasp that is, you know, if they say things like, well, why was sacrifice so important? And why was, you know, is it just the offering or is it the intentionality of the heart or is it, and it's like, no, no, actually it's this whole, you know, again, this whole, this whole communal commitment to following God's commands so that Israel can become this kingdom of priests and this holy nation. You know, I think, I think that, that to me is it, it, kind of steps away from, I mean, that's another nice thing about Leviticus that I think we can learn so much from in the church is that there is such a corporate sense of faith that holiness mm. is, holiness is never something you achieve individually. It's yeah, just impossible. It's just impossible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 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 It is a team sport. That's exactly Even it. ethics in scripture is a team sport, right? You can't become a just and righteous person on yeah. your own rights. Right? Yeah. It has to be, it has to be with collaborative with people around you. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I, I find Christians quickly forget, but can re- be reminded that, you know, you know what, what is the purpose of the sacrifice? Well, what is the purpose of Jesus' sacrifice? Mm. And what logic does it participate, obviously? Yeah. You mentioned, and, and I, I go, again, I go fairly extreme to make the point, but um, 
when people say we don't participate in animal sacrifice, I'm like, oh, contraire, mon frere. We, <laughs> my church does. Uh, we, we have the sacraments on Sunday, which is celebrating, memorializing, and um, other things that I, I think mm. are normal. People have different views, but at, le- at the very least, yes. you're celebrating yeah. an animal sacrifice. In this case, the animal is Jesus. It's how he's depicted. Yeah. However, yeah. and people say, well, how is bread and, and wine or grape juice, uh, wherever mm. you're at? Um, how is that? But you casually said it, the sacrifice of, of the sacraments. Um, but in Leviticus, how are grain and wine and oil and salt and, and mm. other things, aromatics, are sacrifices? They're described yeah. as sacrifices. Yeah. So um, why are animals and objects uh, like bread described as sacrificed? In what way are they sacrificed? Yeah. I mean, and this is, this is something that, um, that I try to argue or try to lay out in, um, in this, uh, this book that's coming out. Um, I don't do it as quite as much in the, in the journey through the world, world of Leviticus, but, but it's, um, but in my mind, there are two kind of general movements in the book of Leviticus. The Leviticus, traditionally Leviticus is divided Leviticus one to 16, Scholars right. call that the priestly literature, priestly sacrifice. Um, and then chapter 17 to 26 or 27 um, is often called the holiness code because it has to do more with moral and ethical holiness. But one of the things I noticed actually as I was studying it is that when you think about it, um, and, it, and it, it doesn't always fall perfectly along these lines, but I think it, but I think there is, is an argument to be made. You have the tent of Yahweh, right? It's Yahweh's home. This is where Yahweh lives. This is where he's chosen to dwell and to to make his home among his people. And then you have the tents of Israel. So you mm. have these, you know, these two tents. And basically in Leviticus 1 to 16, the driving kind of focus of the book seems to be towards Yahweh's tent. You know, these are the mm. sacrifices we do. This is a, you know building up to Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. And everything is focused towards Yahweh's tent. But then when you get into 17, this is kind of this bridge chapter, and then into 18, when you get into the sexual relations and then you get into some of the other things. But it's it's this movement from how we approach Yahweh's tent to now how do the tents of Israel Mm. also reflect his holiness. And so, you know, again, things like sexual relations, um, you know, what you eat and all of these different things, um, bringing the sacrifices back from um, from the altar that you eat in your own home and things, and then how you treat your neighbor, basically, um, and how you treat the land and all of that other kind of stuff. And so it seems like, it seems like they're I think that there is a cohesion to the whole of Leviticus. I don't really see that it's completely divided into two, um, but there is a cohesion there, and it's about it's about maintaining or keeping the holiness of God's tent, His sanctuary, but correspondingly keeping and maintaining the holiness of his people's tents, their mm. own families. And I think that for me actually was a really a kind of a light bulb, also another light bulb moment as, yeah, you know, as part of the Christian church, because I thought, you know, we do tend to emphasize so much kind of the individual faith, the individual conversion, you know, the individuals, you know, kind of working out their sanctification, blah, 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 all of that. When, we don't often think of, you know, as Christians, how do I perceive kind of salvation and holiness in my family or in the community that I live with? Um, you know, do, do you see what I'm saying? I think it's, oh, yeah. and I think, and I think that's where we lose something because we've 
kind of focus so much on the individual's kind of pursuit of holiness or, or you know, pursuit of life in Christ that we forget that actually, you know, that that God is calling us as as a community of holiness. So both within our families, you know, how we raise our children, how we how we treat the people we live with, even if we're single, you know, if we live with other people, how we treat them in kind of this community of faith and this bond of, 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 you know, being in the body of Christ. And I think that's the, um, you know, that for me is, is just one of the, one of the most amazing things about Leviticus. And again, kind of going back to this holistic idea of holiness is that there is this, this beautiful connection made between kind of Yahweh's tent and our own homes and how holiness is is absolutely imperative in both contexts not yeah. kind of in in one or the other and it's of course i mean relatively speaking it's it's easier to focus on your personal holiness it's yeah. difficult to <laughs> focus on community even family holiness like yeah. that. i mean i've got all grown children now and so uh yeah like thinking about shaping and crafting the conversations and their lives between us and coaching them now and it's it's difficult like it's mm. really difficult <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> I, I hear you I mean, even just between two people <laughs> or roommates or whatever it's it's difficult so um if you were to uh point somewhere in the new testament you already alluded to or you talked about john the baptist uh in leviticus 18 how do you see jesus um showing that he's aware hip to or he's concerned with leviticus and his own thinking Mm. That's a good one. I mean, I think the 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 passage that springs to mind is um oh I, and I'm I'm not gonna be able to quote it, but early in Mark's gospel, the um the healing of the leper. I think it's in Mark chapter two or something like that. Um and that to me is is maybe maybe one of the most powerful examples of because it's in that instance that jesus actually reaches out and touches the leper Mm -hmm. and so there's this you know there's everybody there knows that if he touches somebody with skin disease you know he is he's going to be unclean like you know you just don't touch lepers i mean that's that's against all sorts of levitical principles um and so there's there's the power of that jesus understanding the principles of leviticus but also demonstrating that he is the embodiment of this kind of tabernacling holiness and the power mm. of holiness mm. to heal that skin disease. Um, but then also, you know, that's I'm pretty sure that's the same passage where he says, now go to the priests, show right. him your skin disease, which right. is exactly what Moses commands in Leviticus or what's commanded in Leviticus so that you can enter back into the covenant community. So he doesn't say, you know, go off and tell everybody what, you know, what is God, what God has done, but he actually recognizes Moses's command and says, look, if you want to, you know, kind of come back to witness to the covenant community of Jews that you have been healed, that God has made you whole, then go and, you know, offer the right sacrifices, go be examined by the priests and come back into the community. But you know, it, yeah. but it's fascinating that Jesus says that to him. You know, because you know he wouldn't have to if he didn't care about. <laughs> I guess he didn't. You know, didn't right. care about Leviticus. You know, the the uh, parallel well, or uh, soft parallel to that is Luke seventeen with the ten lepers. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Go show yes. yourselves to the priest. Yeah. And I always ask students, like, okay, what are, what are they going to do? Let's map this out. <laughs> and uh, exactly. 
it's really hard for people to realize how onerous of a process that they're getting ready to enter into in order to be restored back to community. So it's not like Jesus was saying, actually, hey, just go get checked out. Like, go to a doctor and have them declare you clean. Yeah, They're getting ready to go shave their whole bodies, baptize yeah. themselves, give a expen- fairly expensive sacrifice that can be mm. scaled for, uh, to economy of scale. Um, okay, I want to switch topics just a little bit since I have somebody. You're an American yeah. who's, uh, who's an expatriate living in England for a long mm. time. Yeah. Uh, living in a weird place in England and Cambridge. Uh, yeah, so it's not, it's not like your average town in England. Uh, cause <laughs> I don't think most Americans are actually aware of what the average town in England is really like. They have they very romantic it, notions. It just all looks like Harry Potter. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm regularly shocked by what Americans think England is like, but, uh, from, when I have international scholars on, I like to kind of say, "Hey, what what do English Christians think mm-hmm. when they when they look over at American Christians? Like, what shocks them? Um, what what do they admire? What are the things they think are just crazy town over here?" And you don't have to speak for yourself; you can just kind of speak on behalf of your British uh, parishioners. Yeah, I think. I think, oh yeah, it's hard to speak on behalf of my British person. Forgive me, British parishioners, if you're listening to this. Um, I mean, I, I think, <laughs> I think for some of them, there is oh, how how would I phrase this in a diplomatic way? Um, I think there's a lot of head scratching about the alignment of religion and political with political parties. I think I think mm. that is maybe one of the one of the things that people scratch their head about a lot most. And and especially kind of during during the Trump presidency, I think people right. just couldn't really grasp why you know, why certain Christians kind of followed a particular political path then um you know, even if it was seemingly completely against, you know, what what Christianity is about, um, because I think over here there's there's definitely more. Uh, I guess I guess there's just a general separation between politics and faith. I mean, uh, more so I think than than necessarily in the states. So I think that is, um, yeah, I think that's probably maybe one of the one of the places where a lot of people kind of just scratch their heads and think, well, how is it that a Christian, you know, believes X or follows this political person when you know. Clearly, maybe what they're saying, and again, it could be it could be on the le- you know Republican or Democrat, I suppose. Right. Um, but it's just kind of why are they so? Why is there such a litmus test as to your kind of particular faith as- aligned with a particular political party? That that, that I think is hard to, for people to get. Yeah, even for some Americans, that's hard. To <laughs> <get>. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and uh, anything that you see that they they aspirationally they look at american christianity they go oh i wish we had more of that over here oh. granted you're in the church of england right <laughs> i am in the church of england i have i have my own church my little church uh, st edwards here in cambridge and i don't know aspirationally that's a good question i don't think i've ever asked i, I know one that. thing that yeah. pastors wish were more oh. like americans what what, what um, is that uh, Oh well, I think Americans, as far as financial generosity, oh uh, yes, yes, that's way a huge outstrip one. the Brits. <laughs> yes, that is very true. That is very true. But I think you know, but it's funny because part of that I think is also because America makes it makes it very not to say that Americans aren't generous. I think they are, um, but I think that the um, the tax system makes it very oh yeah 
possible to do that. Whereas you don't get that benefit over here. So you can't yeah. say, Oh, I'm giving, you know, $10,000 to my church. Can I mark that off my taxes? It doesn't, doesn't quite. Yeah. Oh, that's a good not point. quite the same, yeah. but I do think, but you're right though. And I think it's funny. I remember having chatted with one, with one Englishman uh, some some time ago, and he was saying, you know, he he actually came from the states. He had been um, a vicar in, a, in an Episcopal church for for you know twenty years, and he did come back and say, you know, that he thought this country, England, had lost its capacity for kind of extravagant and generous giving. And and actually, the the clearest way that you see that is when you go visit any cathedral, um, because mm. these were places that were built by generations of people who sacrificed kind of their time and their finances to create these, you know, just these amazing, amazing places of worship around the country. Mm. Um, but he said, he said, you know, he said, he said, I do have hope because at one point there was a time when the English were very generous. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah, there are, like you pointed out, there are probably lots of strands that go into that, um, that fabric yeah. of giving. Yeah. Um, the book is A Journey Through the World of Leviticus. I dare say it is it is the first book I've ever read that makes Leviticus completely comprehensible to a Christian uh, <laughs> and can show them why Leviticus is so important to their own Christianity. Uh, Dr. Reverend Dr. Mark Scalata, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thanks for having me, Drew. It's great to be with you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast. Exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 